Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Can you help me redefine truth and preservation of our soul shine? I can feel it, yours and mine. Close your eyes and witness it inside. In your bones, you will know. Trust and let go. Things in the Name of Love, Episode 15, Learning to Live in the Both and with Kathy Carlisle. I'm speaking with Kathy Carlisle, an amazing soul that I have the honor of knowing. Life for Kathy took the most brilliant twist at around the age of 33. She is now 44. She put her photography business on hold and began to chase answers that would cure her after being diagnosed with MS. What unfolded was a spiritual dream that would help her redefine the meaning of healing and wake her up to an internal compass that had been in atrophy. Through curiosity and a newfound self-awareness practice, she has found herself redefining who she thought she should be and went on a quest to find out who she wanted to be. She explores a world filled with new possibilities. She loves and lives in the both and, and is passionate about inviting others into their own possibilities in her newly opened Live Everything Mindful Self-Care Center. She has learned by trial and error and has a way of sharing her journey with humor and groundedness that would entice the numb slash closed off version of herself. She is determined to continue to grow with her husband of 21 years and three children not a part, and inspire the possibility in others. So if I haven't said this yet, Kathy, you're amazing. Oh, <laughs> yay. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll receive it. <laughs> so the reason why I wanted you on this show is because we had this amazing conversation last week, and I just was like, oh, my gosh, you get it. So I'm going to start out by saying that one of the things that I've found in some people I've come across in my own journey is that uh, there's a tendency to want to preach and you are so thoroughly grounded in yourself. And I just love how you're showing up in the world. And how did you navigate to that spot? I mean, where did you, where did you start and how did you get to the point where you're, you're grounded and connected and sharing your gifts in a way that is mindful of others' journeys. Well, I'll reference back to how you opened in the introduction of me um, through trial and error. So I guess I could start off by saying I fucked up a lot and found my way that way. (laughs) So I learn what doesn't work and I share from a very personal place and try to instill curiosity. Um, And the way I know to do that is that I can only speak from an I place mm-hmm. and I love to play both hands. So I've, I've preached plenty to hear myself. Um, I preached to others and offended plenty. I, I've learned what doesn't work. And so this is what I know what works for me, this path that I'm on right now. So explain to me the phrase both. And I, I love the concept, but I want to introduce it to listeners because they might, I, yeah, just explain it. Well, I always explain things best with actual examples. So let me see if I can think of an example. When I speak about anything, I prefer to speak on both ends. Like, for instance, I've been in a lot of discussions in the past year. I live in a biracial family, in a biracial relationship where we had three biracial kids. And so there's a lot of race talk around me. And so, and I'm a white Mm -hmm. woman. And so I prefer to speak from this place of, I both am irate and can't believe people are racist or biased. And I also know that I live from a biased place. That's what I've learned. So Mm -hmm. I'm able to speak on both 
I am this and I am that in certain examples. And I'm sure we'll have one crop up as we talk that I'll be able to reference. But it alleviates and it alleviates the pressure that I sometimes feel when I speak on one end and then the other person picks up on the other end or I drain all my energy talking about one area like I don't understand biases. I don't, it it just drains my energy. And the minute I'm able to see both and for myself, there's a calm within me. Mm. That's beautiful. And I don't always speak on both and in a present moment. A lot of the work for me is done in hindsight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you can't necessarily see all the perspectives in the moment. I know for me, I, I, try. And when I am calm and peaceful, yeah, I can definitely do that. And when I'm triggered, oh, no, that's not going to happen. I have to wait until I've sat with that emotion and processed it. And then I can see the bigger perspective or I can see a different perspective. That's awesome. That's uh, always inspiring awareness. You know, I'm, I'm in the practice of self-awareness for myself. So anytime I can get the awareness, whether it's in the moment or after, is a bonus for me. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> oh, so what I having, you know, I've, I've known you as a photographer and as a amazing muse for some of the most beautiful portraits of people, including myself that I've ever seen. And what brought you to stop and brought you back into this amazing gift? Well, I can't ever really say that I stopped. I stopped, I guess, the business aspect of it, the pressure that I need to do this for money, but I've never stopped using my camera. And eventually the words changed for me when I describe what I do into just like somebody somebody would use like Reiki or uh, acupuncture or some kind of healing modality, I always see that I use the healing modality of the camera. Mm-hmm. So I love to be able to help people stay in their bodies mm. instead of kind of that shooting out of the body that I often do the minute a camera gets on me of giving the power to the photographer of like, what should I do? Should I turn this way? What looks good? Because I had a realization over the last 10 years, I guess, for myself of understanding I only ever really knew the external compass. Um, I knew what I looked like, if I was beautiful, and all the other characteristics and labels I've ever received were from outside of me. Mm. And so this new journey for me and practice till the day I die, because it appears there's no destination on this one, Mm -hmm. is that I continue to explore how I feel rather than what I should be or should look like. Mm. So with photography, it's taken just a little bit of a turn of, it sounds ridiculous when I talk to someone, I'm like, it's really not about the photos. It's more experiential. Like we could not even have a photo at the end of this. They're like, "Um, tell me again why I'm coming to you as a photographer and paying you. (laughs) So it gets, well, I, I, I mean, go ahead. When you had the opening for the, when you had the opening for the center, and you offered photos and you had us draw out words. Yes. And so I picked open heart, which was is one of my favorite phrases in Mandarin. It's Wohen uh, Kaishin. And I mean, that's my interpretation of open heart. And so I fully felt into what it felt like to have myself fully open hearted. So I'm fully in this moment of being the open-hearted being. I am remembering what it felt like to be in Chengdu two and a half years ago. Experienced like it was an ex- it was a full sensual experience because I couldn't I couldn't speak the language. Mm. So bringing that memory and that emotion into me captured one of the best pictures I've ever had of me because you weren't taking a picture of me. You were taking a picture of the expression of my soul within coming out upon me. Yeah. I mean, 
I dare to say you love the picture because you remember, I mean, everything you just described is a feeling you had connected to. Right. So, you know, my whole, my whole intention of having people pull IMs and then feel into it and paint, you know, with their eyes on my lens, those are all to keep my subject in the feeling. Mm -hmm. And hopefully when they look back, it'll be less about, oh, that's how I look. You know, this all came from an, uh, an experience I had eons ago where a friend of mine, a male photographer, had done a photo shoot of me. And I felt sexy as hell in that shoot. Man, I was feeling it. And then I looked at the images later and I was like, shoot, my sexy is angry. Oh, no. And so I sat with it for a bit and I was like, well, this is years later, right? Of remembering this feeling of like, oh, my sexy is angry. Even hearing myself say it over the years, oh, my sexy looks angry. And then it finally dawned on me that it was like, whoa, how do I know that my sexy looks angry? Oh, because I've, I've already taken in from the external compass what sexy is. And my pictures aren't matching up to that lip biting, puffy lip, perfect body, whatever that image was, right? So this all of a sudden a realization of the disconnect of, wait, I felt sexy. Why can't I see myself being sexy in that shot? And so the rest of the journey has been exploratory. There's no right or wrong or, oh, I'm going to do it different because I'm going to fix it. It's just like, oh, how interesting. I felt sexy, but then I didn't look sexy. What does this mean? Oh, that's awesome. That is so awesome because you're removing the illusions that were fed so often. Like I know I'm, I'm half Swedish. I'm this big, not huge, but I'm five nine and I got big shoulders and I got a big chest and I don't fit any paradigm of what society tells me I should look like. Mm. And I don't care. Like it's taken me a really long time to not care. And, yeah, that's the both and for me. It's like, I don't care and dang it, how interesting I still care or wow, I really did care in the past so much. And it, mm-hmm. right, then it, it sends me on a self-inquiry journey when I'm able to go into both because it's like, I when I hear anyone tell me they don't care, they don't care. I'm like, uh, then why do I feel like you do still care? And that's where I picked up on the both and. There's our first example. Exploring, yeah, I right. Right, because because I know there are decades, decades of trying to fit into like being a size four. That's never going to happen. And why is that important? I don't know because society's telling me to. Well, I'm not gonna. So am I going to start hating myself because I don't meet that expectation, or I'm going to look beyond it? Look at the figure out why it's triggering me. Love it. Love that wound. And heal it so I can actually love who I am. Yeah, I found it just never goes away. You know, I'm I'm raising a six-year-old young woman as well in the midst of this. So unless I stay connected to, wow, there's, you know, a tiny part of me that did, you know, play into that and really hate myself and the way I looked. And so I continue to say yes to the practice of loving myself where I am. It's mm-hmm. It's never a switch. I can just turn on. I'm like, oh, I made it. I'm at a certain age. I just don't care anymore. Right, right. It's it's a. I I know for a fact that I don't fully love myself because I'm still in a human body. There we go. Yeah. I love myself more than I ever have before, and I know I still have more loving to do. I feel like that's what the soul signed up for. My soul signed up for it. I always have like a kind of a cartoon plane in my head that it's like a bunch of souls you know, up in the sky visual that I learned as a kid, right? So souls are up in the sky and my soul is up there going, oh man, do you remember when we were human bodies and we could go down and feel all the senses, like smell, sound, and all those feelings? Like, oh, the sadness one, wasn't that one juicy? Like, I want to do it again. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like, yeah, this is what I signed up for, the the fun of humanness. And wow, I get to do it this time around with a connection of there is another knowing somewhere inside of me, but I didn't sign up this time around to be the the meditating monk on the side of the mountain. I'm like, oh, I'll do suburbia 
and I'll numb up like a zombie for my first half of my life. Then I'll have three kids. And yeah, right. Like it's, it's like, yeah, I mastered that as far as I could until I, you know, numbed out quite literally, right. Some people numb through alcohol or whatever it is that they, they choose. And mine was in a, um, unconscious choosing that I eventually physically started numbing up. And that was the crisis that woke me up. And it was like, oh, okay, mastered this way of living, numbed up, cue wake up. Now it's time to rise from the ashes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what does that look like? Let's play. Mm. And you are so playful. You have... Well, it's really serious. And, and that, I've been in that too. Yeah. And the serious... Part of spirituality for me is it, it ends up ending a lot of expectations, disappointment, suffering, um, judgment, right? Of, of I'm further along or not further along. I've ascended higher, like all of that talk. I've, I've felt it all yeah. and it doesn't serve me um, any longer. Or it's not that it doesn't serve me. It pales in comparison to the playfulness and the fun and the curiosity that I choose to do every day. Which is actually more of my personal understanding is that to be fully connected as a spirit in a body, you are fully in your body and you have the connection to your spirit. Yeah. And how do you do that? You do that with your senses. And by fully, like... Okay, so today I was I had a walk and I shoved my nose into a rose and I just inhaled as deeply as I could because I wanted to get the full I wanted my nose to tickle from it. Because why? Because that feels like living to me. And anything less than that, anything less than that full engagement, which I don't do all the time, doesn't feel as alive. You know, for probably seven years. The number one question I'll ask someone if I'm maxed out on surface conversation is outside of family. I take away the most obvious one outside of family. And that's an assumption. Not everybody comes alive in family, but outside of family, what top three, if I know someone's um, more comfortable in vulnerability, I'll, I'll ask for five. So top three things that make you come alive. And when I first started asking that question... <laughs> because I was exploring it myself, of course, um, I used to get really aggressive answers like, well, what the hell? You don't think I'm alive? I'm like, whoa, whoa. I don't understand why this is an aggressive question. And I know now. I know what that meaning is now. And it's a very personal one for each per It's a very vulnerable one for each person. Like, And the more we compare as a culture, that's one we all use, the more we compare, the more lack of joy there is in aliveness. For instance, if you say your version is shoving your nose into the depths of a rose and that is described as aliveness i'm like well shit i'm gonna fail that one then because that doesn't sound appealing at all right right, right? Like, so then for you. Every, right but if everyone is trying to do this collective like this is aliveness it's all the senses well with someone that has you know spidey senses or misophonia or whatever it is that everything is so too strongly or the noise is too loud or mm -hmm. You know, everything is just overwhelming. It, it's more questions, less statements of how you feel that, that is inviting to me. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I guess I shall pull it back a step and say that being fully present to what is in front of me, whatever that is, whatever it is that ignites my soul that I'm fully present to is for me the journey for awareness and feeling alive. It's awesome. Yeah. Because it's, it is a, it, it's a personal journey. Like I, I geek out at the farmer's market. Why? Because it brings me joy. Does it bring everybody joy? No, of course not. Not everybody's a geek about farmer's markets, and that's okay. And I don't feel compelled to pull back my joy because it's geeky. I mean, I, I, I get excited about – well, of course, I get excited. For me, I get excited about strawberries, but 
like I get giddy about making friends with the farmers because to me that's important. I know it's not important to other people, but that doesn't diminish my experience of it. I used to wonder what other people would think about how geeky I'd get about stuff because that's how I was raised. And now it's not that I don't care because I do care about other people, but what I care more about is allowing myself the opportunity to experience what brings me joy more. Yeah. And I would, what I heard in that is like, it, it, the question arises for me of like, well, who told you it was geeky? Right. And then it's like, oh, wait, there's no one in front of me right now judging me for yeah. coming alive and being fully present at the farmer's market, except me. Mm-hmm. And that's where that practice begins for me of like, oh, wow, I just put a collective, everybody thinks I'm geeky. And then you shut down to that. And it's like, I don't even care if people think I'm geeky. It's like, wait, there's no one around you right now. Mm-hmm. Kathy thinking you're you know, where my most sensitive one, a story of this one is when I was working with one of my healers back in the day and we were going into anger and she's like, you know, cultivate that, that anger about a situation with my dad who's since passed. And so at the time though, she's like, cultivate the anger and we're going to punch it out on the pillow. Okay. So I'm punching it out on the pillow with her. And then I held back, of course, cause it's just that Mm-hmm. For me, it was like that embarrassment was coming in. Am I doing this right, voice? And so in my mind, I'm like, well, I'll let loose when I get home, right? So I go home, I'm like, this is it. Now the practice begins. And I kneel down, I start punching the pillow on my bed. I'm going to scream into the pillow. And I look over and I'm like, oh my God, my Great Dane is judging me. <sighs> right? Like, since <laughs> that awareness. I can put my judgment of myself on inanimate objects. If there is any discomfort or vulnerability that I want to save myself, I can put it on any voice. And so tapping into that for myself, it's like, okay, it doesn't make the embarrassment go away. It doesn't make the shame go away. It doesn't make the vulnerability go away, but it does help to have that awareness of, okay, no one is around right now, let go or whatever the practice is in that moment that I think I'm being judged for. Mm -hmm. So the closer I get to that actual voice, the less angry I am at the external voice. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and realizing that the judgment that we have is our own is, well, in my it is the judgment I have usually is a common denominator. It leads back to the same person, me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in my personal experience, I've I've noticed that most of the behaviors I have developed are the result of perceived conditioning that I received as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so bringing awareness to, A, my protective mechanisms, and B, be the context of the people that I thought were judging me and why I thought that was a judgment has helped me allow myself to feel my feelings more deeply. That's awesome. You said defensive Tactics or mechanisms, I think, right? When you're feeling uncomfortable. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you, I just recently tuned into mine. So do you know what you what your mechanism is or your, your protective mechanism is for you? Oh, I have a couple. The first is when I have the awareness. I like if, if I realize that I'm doing something and it underneath it is a wound. I avoid. Mm. I am so good at avoiding. It's amazing. I can avoid for days. Nice. I, and I have the awareness. So I'm just watching myself going, oh, okay, you're not ready to heal this yet. That's okay. You need to go through your, this is scary. This is scary. Okay, that's fine. I'm going to love myself. I'm going to let myself do what it is. I'm not going to get my, let myself get away with it too much because I'm not going to forget that I have to heal this part of me. But I'll let the, you know, I'll let the doodling or whatever it is that I need to do come out because that's, you know, I'm aware that this is a big trigger. 
And I used to, and I'm better about that when Steven, Steven's a beautiful mirror for me. I, I don't always like it, but I'm very grateful for it. And he'll say something and he used to trigger me into a combination of yelling and then hiding in another room and not talking to him, which isn't very effective. Now I have the presence of mind and the awareness of this behavior to the point where I can say, okay, what is he saying to me? Not what am I hearing, but what is he saying to me? And then why do I feel triggered? But that that's taken a lot of practice sure. to get to the point where I'm like, oh, okay, he is speaking from his perspective to try to convey something to me that I need to hear. And since he's a mirror to me, if I'm triggered, that means I have a wound within. Damn it. <laughs> Mine is without a doubt blame. I can blame, like I said, inanimate objects. I can blame, it's, you know, that Brene Brown, there's a cartoon where she has one of her talks made into a cartoon. It's animated. Have you seen that one? And she drops her coffee. Mm -hmm. That's me yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah, I have. So once I figured out mine um, of blame, like I can have awareness now, and my husband's is fix it. So when he feels discomfort, he wants to fix shit. And when I feel discomfort, I want to blame. So I guess for the listeners that don't have the advanced practice, the most important part of this that we've had is discovery and awareness that it's going down. I'm like, okay, oh shit, I'm blaming right now. And it doesn't go much further than that in the moment we just are fully aware of all the discomfort mm -hmm. and that that's a hard thing i mean i grew up in a family where where feeling emotions was not really well not really it wasn't at all encouraged so i i i mean i was happily i'm not anymore but i was an expert in repression and so for me learning to be comfortable in my emotions has been an, a heck of a journey and gratefully one that I've been open to because now I can actually cry when I feel like I need to cry. And it used to be, it would, it would take a lot of effort for me to cry even two years ago uh, because I, it was that judgment thing. It's like, who's going to judgment? Cause I, you know, well, I'm not supposed to cry because crying is a sign of weakness. So crying is actually one of the healthiest things I could possibly do for myself because it helps me release grief. And I had a lot of grief in my life. I lost like nine family members with Stephen in the space of six years. So we had massive, massive deaths and, and so much so that it was really hard to process it. And so repressing all of that, uh, finally has because I'm allowed I'm allowing myself to grieve and not caring how ugly I look when I do it because I know it's healing that's been really really amazing that's awesome thanks yeah you remember the days well it still happens but nothing nothing worse I'm a walking hyperbole my daughter likes to call me <laughs> Um, <laughs> that, that feeling when your head's going to implode or explode because you're holding back a cry, like in the, where I get it now, sometimes still where the external compass for me is still pretty loud for myself is the movie theater uh -huh. because inevitably holding back a cry for me makes me want to cry harder. And so trying to hold it in, it makes it the, what we would call quote unquote, the ugly cry uh -huh. right? and the ugly cry. <laughs> like it has noise it, it's snot everywhere yeah but I found I can't even get myself into those crying states when I actually let it pass mm -hmm. through me it's it's a lot less dramatic when I let it flow I had a, a healing about a, two weeks ago where I fully felt the pain of abandonment that I felt when I was, um, I was in traction in six months because my, my right hip was dislocated. So I felt abandonment because six months old, wow. I don't have any context for what's going on. And they're, they're actually healing my legs so I can walk. But at six months old, I'm just like, nobody loves me. I'm in traction. I can't be picked up by my mom. 
like, so I'm having this massive emotion that I didn't even know I had in me because I never sat with it. And for 90 seconds, my stomach hurt. I doubled over in pain. I was ugly sobbing. It was just this, because it was 50 years old, just double over in pain. Ah, horrible. 90 seconds later, it's gone. Yeah. You're like, how do I do this all the time? I thought I was going to be crying for years because it was so painful. Nope, 90 seconds, gone. (laughs) Holy wow. That's mind-boggling. No kidding. Tell me what the unconscious things are. (laughs) I can just release them. (laughs) Oh, man. So... In your journey, is this what inspired you, like your your awareness, your continual curiosity towards inward, and how has this influenced you to create the LAM Center? Well, you know, I start every event, and it's an important quote that was brought to me early in my journey with um, the only differences between the words illness and wellness is the I in illness and the we in wellness. And I just had started seeking out like answers outside of me, someone or something will fix me. Then I started putting people and products on a pedestal. And then I would go through the process of ripping them down. Um, I'd go to retreat and be able to try this new version of myself on. Then I'd come home and crash. So it really started and continues Mm -hmm. to be this journey of curiosity, like, can I have the courage and shift with my family rather than apart with my old self rather than apart Mm -hmm. and leave her behind and rename myself, which is a brave journey in itself. It just wasn't Mm -hmm. the possibility that seemed enticing to me at the time. So I was like, geez, I wonder if I can do this in the roots that I've created with my amazing you know, mm-hmm. made family and the family I was born into. I love them all so much. But if I was going to leave that old version of me behind, there was an absolute panic. So that kind of started the LEM Center. You know, I had mm-hmm. events in my house for eons and then I'd rent spaces. And it was always this curiosity of like, one day I want this huge dream, big dream center, you know, where we can have workshops in the place we live in and shift in our families, not away from our families, right? So the drive started and it still was bringing in these superior, in my my words, superior voices, right? I bring my naturopath, tell us how to stay healthy. And then I was like, wait a second, enough's enough with the pedestal path. And so my naturopath back in the day had the bravery to come to my house and I said, okay, could you physically stand up on the chest? And so she stood up higher than us in a circle around her. And I said, okay, what do you struggle with? And, and asked her a couple of vulnerable questions. And she said, I'm afraid, you know, as a naturopath that I can't ever be sick. And I said, great, you can step down now. And now we can really start to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And so as this concept, of like we all have incredible mm. talents and gifts inside, you know, back in the day of a village, they'd send the individual off to find their gift and bring it back to the village people, right? And empower no matter what their age was. So I was like, how do I get back to that for me? And so, you know, today it's it's called a self-care center. First, Live Everything Mindful came to me as this huge name, like who the hell is ever going to, especially me, live everything mindful? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then this self-care center, I'm like, what is self-care? And then I started judging what I thought self-care was and what it's not. And to me, Kathy Carlisle version of self-care it equals self-aware. So it's my space to practice self-awareness, connection to self first and foremost, and connection to others in new ways, right? New conversations. So it's this self-care center now that has five rooms that you can connect to yourself or others, whether it's through meditation or sensory stuff or pulling cards or doing art for art's sake, not because of the outcome. You know, all the things that I imagine 
were meant to be cultivated through childhood, I just lost really quick within myself because of the self-parenting or judgment that I was doing for years. So now it's like, I don't have to tell an 11-year-old what to do in the center, most 11-year-olds and under. It's the more adult teen version of myself that's like, tell me what to do. What is this place? I want to judge it. Is it religious? Like, tell me what it is so I can run from it. Ooh. And really everything in it. And that, I don't know if that's hyperbole. Most stuff in the center would have repelled me. Oh, interesting. Back in the day. Interesting. Yeah, my journey started with judgment first and then understanding why the judgment was coming so strong. So most of my most brilliant teachers early on in the journey were because I judged the shit out of them. One was too happy and smiled too much. Uh, you know, if anyone smelled like patchouli, I'd be like, who the hell has it on? I'm allergic to incense, like all of it. So I just have a really unique journey where I can connect to that version of me still. Yeah. I, it wasn't for me to just go, I've always been into this, you know, it's, no, it's my soul's journey. That's my metaphysical voice when I get really silly with myself, like, <laughs> I shall ascend now. And I'm thinking all knowing this moment and all is love. Like that's there too. And I came to play yeah. this other side of me too. I love that you have the, the awareness of yourself to the extent that you can make you can play in both areas, in all areas. Sure. Because that's something that a lot of people don't give themselves a permission to do. It's, it's hard to just, yeah, I've got, I've got some shadows and I have some light and I love my shadows because they're just part of me. And my journey is to fully love who I really am. Oh, that's a hell of a journey, isn't it? So I have multitudes of layers that I have to peel off and love and recognize that they're there and and celebrate the cool stuff I do. And to be in that place of just, yeah, this is who I am, is a remarkable space to be in. Mm. And it feels like you've navigated that pretty darn well. Well, it's like I said before, it's not a destination for me. So I just, the navigation for me is the continued practice right. of awareness and bringing compassion to the awareness, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Whether that's in the moment or in hindsight, of like, okay, that's where I can bring in humor and a lot of the stuff of having awareness of what I thought or felt in a moment. Um, where it's like, I don't know, it, it just, it, it softens the judgment, right? In the mo moment, the judgment will make me want to separate from the person or the situation. Mm -hmm. Going towards it with some compassion and, and later on awareness helps me stay out of the judgment zone. Yeah. That's a... That's really, that's a really beautiful way to describe how to navigate judgment because it's something that we all do. And I'm constantly amazed when I think of, you know, when I think of, oh, I'm all good with that. Then another piece of judgment comes up. I'm like, oh, all right. And, and for what, what I've seen myself in the past few months is, now, when I have something come in, I don't go, oh, my God, I can't believe I thought that. It's like, oh, oh, okay. I didn't know that was in there. All right. That's, that's good, which is pretty massive for me because I've had this, this tendency to place many, many, many expectations on myself. And when... I come at those expectations from a place of, okay, thank you for letting me know versus, oh, I can't believe this. Uh, it feels much more easy to navigate. So one of the things I noticed about you and Jake when I went to the center for your open house 
was the delight that you have for each other. You've been married 21 years, and I don't know many couples that have that delight in their lives for each other. How have you cultivated that? I can only speak for myself on this one, that I keep getting more and more curious and falling deeper in love with him the more I get in relationship with myself. He's given me the gift of, since really the beginning of our relationship, um, of seeing me new and giving me permission to grow or be sad and miserable or depressed when I first met him to, okay, who are you again today? Whether he said those words or not, he gave me that space or I gave myself that space when I was around him. So we've got a very ripe space, right? That's not, it's like nourishing space Mm -hmm. to grow together. And I, you know, I'm very proud that I collect a lot of tools and, and take my my titles of wife and mom really seriously. And as I did with say being a a dog mom Mm -hmm. or a cat mom, like my job of being the emotional, what is it called? It's not navigator, emotional laborer in the house. I'm like, I will watch every episode of my cats from hell and dog whisperer, right? Like I'll bring tools to the village and the family. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of research and and curiosity around having a healthy household, healthy marriage. So I do, I do take pride in that. And then my husband has these amazing gifts of both knowing who he is and being secure in that and gives me space to explore within my own insecurities. And I don't know, we, we probably will never have that concrete answer of like, Oh, you've been married a hundred years. What do you do? What's the gift you can give everyone? the number one rule in our marriage slash household, there's only one rule and that's the ICU rule. And so the example I would give for this one is when my youngest Jameson said, mom, if you ever made me wear all black, I might die. And then a couple days later, he came out wearing all black and the both and was that moment of panic of, he told me who he was. We committed to holding that for each other. And now he's doing exactly what he said he didn't want to do. Do I, the options are within that both and I can call him out. Hey, you said Mm -hmm. that you would never wear all black. And the practice, the ICU rule is, I see you wearing all all black, James. And that's kind of the concept of what I bring into the marriage as well as I see you, especially in those really, really vulnerable, potentially embarrassing moments when I'm trying on something new. There's nothing worse. You know, the where I found the healing with this one was an old story in junior high. I went to a Catholic school my whole um, 12 years of schooling. And so we all really knew each other. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I showed up to school one day dressed up because I wanted to feel beautiful. I know this in hindsight now, but I showed up dressed up and everyone's like, why are you all dressed up? And immediate shame, right. And embarrassment of like, Oh God, I'm doing something different and new. And so I remember vividly, I was like, mm, I have an interview or I, I, I said something around um, having to travel. Mm-hmm. And at the, back in that day, we traveled on pass. You had to dress up. But I didn't have the courage in that moment to just say, I wanted to feel beautiful or I wanted to look pretty, right? Like I didn't have that courage. And I found the courage now in the tools that I need as an adult and have now passed that on to my kids. So I'm mm-hmm. enamored every day that they have the courage to be like, I just want to do this because I want to feel a certain way. I'm like, what? That's amazing. That's really like, I can't, I can't ever imagine having that conversation with my family. Like, why did you do that? Well, cause I feel like it. Wow. Like, and, and, and genuinely express the feelings because that's so amazing. Well, it, it was really important for me to fit into the clan as well. That's, that's the human nature's, first learning, like, who do I need to be to fit into the tribe? Mm-hmm. And so I learned that really early. And so it's not that they were holding it against me. We had this commitment to, right. this is what it means to be, you know, a Hajdukovic, which was my name, my maiden name. So I learned really quick what being a Hajdukovic meant. Okay. And that wasn't really necessarily told to me. It was things that I formulated on my own. Mm-hmm. 
So even um, my son went to college this year and he and his roommate had a, a conversation that his roommate was very strict in his beliefs. Like he knew like we're from a certain religion and I believe this. And Trey was really struggling in that conversation. Like it turned into a debate and his, his roommate was more comfortable debating than Trey is. It was like, Oh, what am I feeling? This is conflict. We're not agreeing. Like we should agree. And we're roommates. And so he called us the next day or gave us a Marco Polo, like a video app. And he was like, uh-huh. Hey, mom and dad, I had this conversation with my roommate and it was really uncomfortable and he believes certain things and I don't really believe it. And he kind of paused and he goes, I just want to talk to you and dad and just check in to see what do we believe again? Oh, that's so terrible. And as, as uncomfortable as that was to hear, because I know what he was feeling. Yeah. It also was a huge success feeling on my part as a parent. I looked at Jake and I was like, okay, we did it. We didn't instill him with a ton of stuff. Like we believe this, we believe that. That's why I'm so careful within the live everything mindful concept that it's not a community because community based stuff is like, Oh, we believe the same thing. We believe a collective. And I'm, I, I don't thrive in that environment or I, I, I should say I do. I have the potential to thrive in it. That doesn't mean I stay healthy thriving in that. Right. 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 Because it, you know, what, what needs yes you can have people who support you and you're on your own journey like that's the hero's journey is you have your own quest and so to have support which is what you clearly have given which is amazing for him to say hey you know what I don't have this weird thing that my roommate has. Um, Not sure what to do with that. That's actually really cool because you just, you let him feel who he is as opposed to telling him who he is. Well, as we know, as I know from my childhood and you've expressed is it's pretty uncomfortable to feel. So I know that having those roots that his roommate has feels really comfortable too. Yeah. Right. Like, and I grew up with that comfort. I grew up knowing. And so I'm by choice allowing, you know, it's, it's hard to this day. We call it resilience training. Like I didn't have a lot of resilience training growing up for myself, Mm -hmm. navigating feelings and going towards discomfort. Whereas Jake, my husband had a lot of resilience training. He had to figure stuff out on his own. And so 10 years ago, right before I got diagnosed, we started asking the questions to each other. Like, how do we raise our kids somewhere in the middle of not being completely dependent and entitled Mm -hmm. on your end of things, referring to me. And I I had stated it on my end of things of like feeling totally desperate that I can't do life on my own. Mm -hmm. And you having to figure out life totally on your own in your mind. Mm -hmm. And so it was a raw, a about that time that I got diagnosed. That's why I say everything I ever asked for leading up to diagnosis came in that MS diagnosis. I wanted all these things and I can list the things to this day that I feel like it brought me. Would I have consciously chosen to get those things in that way? Absolutely not. But I was hell bent on doing those things. Oh, (laughs) So I, there's a beautiful saying um, that I just got from, uh, Rachel Hollis on her made for more documentary. And she was kind of going towards that. You know, I, I've said, heard myself say over and over life doesn't happen to you. It happens for you. And that's a real fucked up thing to say when someone's going through Mm -hmm. trauma or even invites into. And so I understand it now. And she articulated well when she's like, you know, not everything does happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. You get to give it meaning. And so I understand that in a much more gentle place now of understanding. I I do believe everything happened for me. And at the time I wouldn't have used those words and they're not appropriate words. I did find meaning in it in hindsight. Well, because of how you chose to work with it, I guess. I can't, it seems insensitive to me to say, well, everything happens for a reason when you're dealing with somebody who has an illness or 
whatever you want to call a diagnosis because they're not in the place where they can receive it. It's like, okay, you have this diagnosis, which means that your body is yelling at you to wake up and how you choose to respond to it is part of your journey. Yeah. I, I think that what I was referencing probably in the beginning is the most empowered verbiage I've ever found on it is it's not even for me to speak on anyone else's thing anymore. It's, it's right. Anytime you or we comes into my vocabulary, I usually do a quick check of like, okay, let me go back to mine. Let me go back to, I. Mm -hmm. it's like, oh yeah, I found my way. That doesn't mean anyone else has to, it doesn't mean I have any answers for anyone else. Doesn't mean I'm doing it the right way. And yet Every time I say, you know, these broad stroke, mm -hmm. everything does happen for a reason. Life happens for you. It's projecting that out to the world rather than mm -hmm. inviting people into that concept because I practice it. Well, for me, one of the reasons why I started this podcast, other than being called to use my interviewing skills and my, a bunch of my skills is because I feel like when I have the opportunity to share some of my journey, it can help someone in terms of, oh, I can relate with this, or, or I have a friend who can relate with this. It's not coming from a place of I have all the answers, because I certainly don't. And what I love is that by sharing stories from our journeys, we can create a sense of belonging from not as a community, but just like, oh, I'm not the only one who feels this. Somebody else has gone through this or somebody else has had something like this and I can relate. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't ever pretend to know all the answers. I just know that this is something that I was called to do because I feel a need to share my story so I can hopefully help one or two people. If more, that would be amazing just because I'm helping them, not because I have an ego attached to it. The more I can bring in the both and for me, the more approachable and understandable in this new foreign language that can be present in spirituality communities and talk is that we're preaching to the choir then. And so mm -hmm. I would rather try to speak to that version of me 10 years ago that was completely repulsed by that kind of talk and, and the person I am today. Mm -hmm. So if I can find ways for her to get curious of this version of me, mm -hmm. I feel like I've succeeded, right? Like, yeah. so I have to be that both and for that version of me. And she's, she's never going to be able to hear me if I'm collectively talking and it's right. love and light and unicorns and we have to elevate. Like that's necessary talk when it's necessary, but it's right. not necessary very often in my personal life. Right. Right. Because it is, it feels separate. Well, it's a foreign language, you know, when I yeah. first started talking the way I talk now with awareness, um, my family very openly said, you speak a foreign language. We don't even understand what the hell you're saying. Mm. And I understand that now. I get it. Yeah. 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 But she didn't at the time. No, I was like, I'm speaking. It's just like uh, my girlfriend and I that originally started this journey that eventually ended in live everything mindful. It was a different name. And at the time, my perception of the story was the more religious she got, the more metaphysical I got and I created separateness, whether that was mm -hmm. real in her story or not, I can't convey, but it appeared to be that way that I just got really angry that I was like, we're speaking the same language. When you say a Bible verse, I get it. I can hear that and translate it. Why can't you translate what I'm saying? Mm. Yeah. Right. Because we hear what we can hear. And I know uh, for me, so I have a background in cultural history, which which basically means I was very curious about what made a, a, a them. 
Like, why is there us and them? It never made sense to me. And through countless iterations of post-grad school, what it's done for me is to understand that I have certain programs that run in my head that not everybody understands. So how do I make myself more relatable and understandable to others so that they can understand what I'm saying in a way that isn't demeaning to my knowledge and is accessible at the same time? Probably the most powerful quote in the last four years that I've gotten really curious about and dissected a lot was any form of separation is a form of self-hatred. And I've really dissected that for me personally, which has just led to more self-awareness, right? Like I'm very, very aware of when I'm separating from someone and, you know, doing the inquiry work for myself. I understand in those moments why I'm trying to separate, you know, I'm, I'm not the realms. I'm still not comfortable fully seeing myself in those moments story-wise, since we're not sharing stories in that moment is when I run across someone homeless, I don't have perspective of being homeless. And so I, I, it's easy for me to separate right in that moment, really, really fast. Mm-hmm. When someone's being really victim-y in a moment, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to see myself. So I separate, but I can do more of the after effect with that. It started around the same time that Trump got elected and so many people, that's really where my both and journey really started getting really strong mm-hmm. was that so many people were able to speak on, he's this, he's that. I can't believe anyone would vote for him. It's awful. And somehow I felt like I had this secret inside where I was like, mm-hmm. well, I've been a zombie in my zombie self before and I would have followed easily. Or if a killer came in and just said, we're going to kill everyone that's not like this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. I can't know for sure that I'd be the one that stands up. I don't know. And I'm not sure why I have that awareness within me and being able to speak on it, but it sure has helped me not separate from people Yeah, because that's exactly what I'm, I'm doing in those moments that I'm able to go with the collective. Like, yeah, I would never think like that. It's like, um, I think I would, or I think I have, or, you know, if I still lived in my labels, mm. Back in the day of my upbringing, I probably would have voted for him too, but I didn't. I have a choice and I continue to have a choice, but it doesn't separate me from that version of myself that might. And so that I might have a conversation with her one day to give her permission to not make that choice that everybody says you should do. Mm-hmm. So it's been mm-hmm. my, my own self-exploration of this. Wow. Any form of separation you do, Kathy is a form of self-hatred. Can you find it? Can you find where you're disliking that version of yourself? Even if it's someone I don't practice, right? I can still see that version of myself somehow. Oh, that's beautiful. And not everyone can. I get that. But it's been a very self-empowering practice that has really diminished my feeling of them and really opened my up my eyes up to my own biases. Wow. I've, I've opened myself to more compassion, which is a different angle. Well, yeah, people often go, I send compassion to Trump. I'm like, no, I don't. I try to send compassion to that version of me that would support him in any way. Right. And, and, And for me, I've been, okay, where do I see love in others? Like where, where do I see the love in me that I can give the love that I am to them? So, that's been my focus and I really love what you brought in because that's just a whole different perspective that I hadn't considered before. And now I'm going to have to start going down that journey. (laughs) Oh, Kathy, thank you so very much for this amazing conversation. You're so welcome. Thank you. Really an honor to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here and chatting. I always love to chat. The action item of the week is to pay attention to your inner dialogue. How do you talk to yourself? I'll give you an example. This week, I was going to an evening meeting that I was called to. My mind questioned my attire, why I was going, trying to come up with any reason not to go. 
I listened to it without judgment, and then it went anyways. I had an incredible time. How does your inner talk sound? Do you let it limit you, or do you witness it and do what your heart tells you to do? From personal experience, I can tell you, you won't master it in a week, but try it out and see how it works. It's a fascinating process. Until next week, I bid you the highest peace, love, and true prosperity. Namaste. Can you help me redefine truth and preservation of our soul shine? I can feel it, yours and mine. Close your eyes and witness it inside. In your bones, you will know. Trust and let go. Let it flow. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.